You're listening to The Sound of Pursuit. I'm Hal Humphreys, and I'm coming to you live from somewhere in the middle of rural Tennessee today. I am joined today, as I am almost every week, by my co-host and good friend, John Nardese. John, how are things up there in Boston? Things are fantastic, Hal. Out here looking at the beautiful cold Atlantic Ocean and just uh, put the surfboard away for the season. How you doing down there in Tennessee? I'm, I'm doing great, man. We've got um got a beautiful, absolutely crystal clear blue sky day. Um, I'm sitting by the by the Buffalo River. I went down this morning and thought about taking a swim, but it was like 38 degrees this morning, so I thought better of that. Um, things are really good over here in Tennessee. Um, you know, we have right. we have we have covered a lot of things over the past several. Um, several months with the sound of pursuit and it occurred to me that there's one thing that we haven't spent enough time talking about and that is the art of surveillance yes tell me you know when when people think of private investigators um you know those of us in the business know that it's a broad topic it can be any number of things from due diligence research to working with companies on mergers and acquisitions or civil or criminal defense or plaintiff's work or any number of things, finding lost relatives, that kind of business. But almost everybody out there in the world, when they think of a private investigator, they think of surveillance work. They do think of that. And I think it's due to some of those uh, fantastic TV shows like Cheaters and other ones that only show the successful surveillance. (laughs) They don't show all the unsuccessful surveillances. Um, but it, it is a big part of many, many firms out there. Even and my firm is, you know, you and I are typically known as more uh, litigation specialists, interviews and background research for trial lawyers. But I always had a big subset of work doing surveillance. I've always had uh, employees or uh, subcontractors doing doing that work for me, uh, in particular in the medical malpractice and child custody areas. So. Uh, you know, I think the, the term originally, it's a French term, which I think translates to very simply meaning to keep watch or keep the watch. And uh, very simply, you know, it's passive observation of the subject and the activities, as basic as it gets. It's misleadingly easy. I think a lot of people tout themselves as being very good at surveillance, and then you kind of sort through who really is good at surveillance, because there are plenty of people who struggle with it. Yeah. Um <clears throat> surveillance uh observation documentation um in our world it's the documentation that really matters but i've i've seen cases where it's not possible to get actual video footage of a thing but a good private investigator through you know diligence and research and applying their trade properly can in fact take the stand and say i am a professional witness i saw this person doing x y or z it's much better to have the documentation. And that's what we do as private investigators primarily is we, we document that behavior. Um, you know, right. knowing, knowing what surveillance is, I think is a pretty important thing. Um, you know, what would you say is the most common reason for surveillance? I think the most common reason is just to I'll think about some of the cases we work on where somebody's made a claim in the medical malpractice area or personal injury area, and they've made claims about their physical activity levels. And any good attorney is always going to confirm that. And in a fairly good percentage of cases, 
and I don't mean 2% or 3%, I mean 10 to 20, 25%, those claims about the activity level are exaggerated. And it can be as something as simple as uh, a case where somebody said they were basically home all the time. And we never saw them doing anything interesting, but we certainly did see them driving. And they even had made a claim right in the first day of trial that they weren't even driving that car, which they had not made that claim prior. It was shy. It was very easy to blow them out of the water because there's one thing that we had over the last four months was endless footage of them getting into the car and driving. So it really is that it's that basic kind of thing. What what is the real activity level of this person who's either a plaintiff or defendant in the case? Yeah. And, I, you know, when you when you think about it in terms of like the, the two things that come to mind for me most often regarding surveillance are going to be um, workers comp men malpractice, that kind of business and then cheating spouses. And two things drive these cases. One is you got a $7 million lawsuit against an attorney. You bet your ass someone is going to verify that that person is actually disabled. Yeah. Right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in the cheating spouse realm, a lot of times there is money involved. But a lot of times the other most important thing in this world that we call private investigations, which you and I have discussed this, is totally built on unnecessary human drama. So if it ain't money, it's ego. And if somebody gets their feelings hurt, they want to prove that, you know, Jim Bob is out there, you know, making out with his next door neighbor or her best friend or whatever. They're going to do everything they can to document that. Um, Even though, like in your state, my state, they don't have to. Right. Right. And we've talked about this, you know, we've seen text messages from clients where I'll, I'll ask the client, <clears throat> send me over these text messages that you found on the phone and we'll see, you know, see if there's any sense in taking this case. And you read the text messages and you think, yeah. oh my God, this guy is cheating. We don't, we really don't need to do this. But that person psychologically still, even though they can read it and they understand is I still, there's 2% chance I just need you to document this, which is fine. And we, you know, as long as we explain carefully what we're doing, usually that's that's a case that uh, many people would would take on. Yeah. Um, all right. I think I just illustrated one point. We're we're about to go into the topic of how do you remain undetected? Um, yeah. If you're a surveillance operative and you're out in a rural setting and you're doing surveillance and you've got camouflage on, you're doing all that stuff. Silence your phone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're learning on the job, Hal. Yes, absolutely. So, so you know, in rural settings, there's something. And I live in Tennessee. I grew up in West Tennessee. I'm a farm boy by trade. Like that's, I, I'm comfortable in the woods. But in a rural surveillance situation, you've got some really specific things to worry about. Number one, there usually aren't that many cars um, in a specific area. And if you roll up in a in a in, in my case, in a black Ford Ranger, a new Ford Ranger, um, and you're there four or five days in a row, someone's going to notice that. Yep. And I think, unlike you, being in the urban area surrounding Boston, we have different issues here, in, you know, in an urban setting or even a suburban setting. For us, it tends to be more, uh, we're doing surveillance at Logan Airport in Boston, our hotels, and it's sheer numbers. You know, I, I might have to employ several investigators at a hotel because there's multiple 
ways to get in and out of the hotel. Uh, airport surveillances are notoriously difficult. You know, you can deal with people taking cabs or Uber or getting on the subway. So, so we have different problems than, <laughs> than rural surveillances. Um, but I think in the end, you can talk about the qualities of a good surveillance person. It's, it's about blending in. It's about being adaptable. It's about reading whatever situation you're in and then making an adaption to that situation. So if it starts out like we talked, you're in a rural part of Tennessee, but then they drive into Nashville and they're at a five-star restaurant, you can't just walk into that restaurant with a, you know, a black Sabbath t-shirt and jeans and boots. I mean, you or, have to... a or a ghillie suit, walk in with a ghillie suit. And <laughs> right. a restaurant. Yeah. That's not going to work. Yeah. Out. Unless you cut through the kitchen maybe, but, uh, so that that's about adaptability. And I think when whenever I hire people in different states, you know, that you never want to hear that excuse that, oh, the, the target, uh, the subject went to a different area. I, I wasn't prepared. That's that doesn't cut it in this area. You you can have different types of cameras. You have to have different changes of clothes. Um, you could talk about switching vehicles, but really it's overall about calmness, not overdoing it, not overreacting to different situations like when people come out to the car and confront you you don't want to turn that into a big you know uh last stand at the okay corral type of thing you just want to diffuse it continue to sit there and observe so good surveillance people accomplish that with no problem and people yeah. who are not as good at it they struggle yeah and you, you you brought up something that was is kind of next on the list of things that i was hoping to talk about that is the gear the kit that a private investigator should have with them um, I know when I was doing surveillance work, uh, it was not uncommon to get a call at two o'clock in the morning. Hey, we need to go do this. I had a go bag. Yeah. I had a bag that had stuff in it. In, the, in my go bag was an array of cameras, a key fob camera, um, a night vision camera, a standard, you know, high definition handheld camera. Um, yeah. You know, that those are tools that we have to have as private investigators. I've also had really good luck using my iPhone um, in, in a number of situations. Um, but also in the go bag, I'm going to have a change of clothes, if not two or three, because I might end up in any number of situations. Um, right. I want to be ready for those things. So when it, when it comes to what makes for a good operative, um, I think you're right. The ability to blend in, the ability to adapt. Um, and I think this is, this is what I hadn't really thought real long and hard about, but, you know, if you're doing rural surveillance and your, your, your pretext for being in an area is I'm a surveyor, I'm on a survey crew and you've got the, the big survey tripod up with the GPS thing on top of it. You got the, the high visibility vest on part of pulling that off is confidence, right? Absolutely. Being the part. Yeah. Or as we, we were talking earlier about blending in by sticking out and to stick out, and yet still maintain that character, you have to be confident. You have to be yeah. convincing. You can't be overreacting. And I think that uh, the, the one thing that I have seen in surveillances that goes sideways is that person who is not confident over time that they're going to get what they need to get and they overdo it. So maybe, you know, they're, they're shooting over a fence, for example which you can't do. The fence is intended to convey privacy and give privacy. So you can't shoot over it. And yet sometimes yeah. I've had investigators tell me, well, there's an opportunity to shoot over the fence. So I thought it was a good idea. No, no, it was a bad idea. Yeah. You know, my, my, the clients that I have trust me to do the work over time 
They understand that day one, two, three, maybe nothing happens, but day four, you're going to get it. So don't rush into it on day one, you know, seven hours, you're worried and you're running over the fence and sticking the camera up. That's a bad move. So I, I love people that are just calm. They think about what they can do. They don't try to overdo it. Uh, and you build those relationships over time, in particular with, you know, subcontractors that you use in different states. And that's a, that, those can be very valuable uh, relationships over the course of a lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that is occurring to me, like I, I haven't done surveillance in quite some time. I've been focusing most of my work on um, criminal, criminal defense work. Um, but I know that you do take surveillance work orders in. Uh, and then you subcontract that out to someone. So for those of you out there that do not like surveillance, there may be a profit center out there for you if you can subcontract with people that are out there doing it. Yeah, in particular, if the type of cases that I'm talking about tend to be from law firms. So there's a whole bunch of other things on that case. So I might be interviewing two or three people. I might be doing deep records research in courts in different states. So the surveillance piece is there and, I, and they want it done through one source, me, and it's perfect. So I have experts doing the surveillance. I'm expert at the other stuff. Um, I think that works really well. And, and, and my clients understand that I, I use subcontractors. They have no issue with it. I supervise them carefully in the reports. The other big thing is the reports. You know, the, the reports that I generate are, they're formatted in a certain way. They're concise. My clients like that. They don't want to read through all these different reports that are 18, 20 pages, they expect me to summarize what's been done. So uh, that can be a very good business model for people. We've talked about the kit and the tools that a private investigator needs to do this kind of work. And there's always a push for you've got to have the highest quality uh, uh, video camera. You've got to have really good. You've got to get clear video. You've got a crystal clear video. Here's the thing. That's great. That's best practices. Get the absolute most clear high def video you can. Get 8K you know, video if you can. At the end of the day, some of the most incriminating video that I've gotten um, has been using an iPhone, sitting in my driver's side seat of my car shooting through the side view mirror so i've got a camera on the iphone through a window onto a mirror catching the person doing something they're not supposed to do and yeah. at the end of the day the the job of surveillance is to document people doing something that they're not supposed to be doing and however you have to do that do it yeah. And we were just on a bunch of us were on Twitter joking about this. When you shoot through a mirror, the images are reversed and the other side's attorneys are going to lose their mind over that. And they're going to accuse you of all kinds of things that you're misleading people and you're, you're not being honest. And we always train investigators and surveillance specialists who say it doesn't matter. Just you concede the point that you, you, the images are reversed. You don't argue that point. That's just a physical fact. The 55 minutes of video still shows your guy lift, you know, you're lifting up gigantic rocks in his front yard, even though he's supposed to be disabled. That's it. So it's a, the fact that the image is reversed and he's the right arm is the left arm. That you can explain that, and you just have yeah. to be patient. It's not. All, it doesn't mean that the video is no good. 
you don't want to argue with the lawyer if you're called to the stand on that. You just explain yeah. it. Yeah, I love it. All right, so I think we've covered most of the things that I wanted to cover. We do have, you know, we're talking about uh, tools and and things that we can use as private investigators. Um, you know, there is some new tech out there that is available. Um, some tools that you can use. I'm thinking specifically of um, drones or GPS trackers. John, what, you know, I, I get that these can be amazing tools, but what are some things that a, an operative might need to think about in using these tools? Yeah, drones and GPS trackers are great and we use them in certain settings. I think the two issues, I think with both of them, arguably, but especially GPS trackers are in this state, trespass and stalking claims, which have a civil aspect and a criminal. And sometimes people forget that you can get nailed <laughs> in two different ways on that. So you have to be careful. So we, when we use GPS trackers, it's only in a setting where our client has some claim over the property. It's their car, it's their spouse's car. It doesn't matter if the spouse registered the car, that's meaningless. It's just that that's part of the marital property. So we're, we're comfortable with that. Okay. Or, or an employer too will track their own property. That's totally fine. The, the, it gets much murkier and trickier when you, you know, if somebody says, I want to put a tracker on this car because it's easier than doing surveillance. We, we won't do that. Yeah. Um, and people, people will. There are plenty of people that do that. But I think it, you can open up a can of litigation worms for you. So <laughs> be careful. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I've made the argument in the past that, you know, just relying solely on GPS makes for um, bad investigations. Um, even if you're going to use these tools, be ready to back it up. If you've got a GPS tracker on a car, you've got all the rights in the world to put it on that car. You can't just use the map and say they went here, here, and here. You've got to document where it is they went, what they did, those kind of things. So it's not, it's a tool to help you out. Drones, for instance. I mean, drones are amazing. You can fly those things up so high, people can't hear them. You get really good high definition video of a thing, but you need to be aware of some of the rules for using drones. Number one, if you fly it too high and you're in an urban setting, such as, I don't know, Boston, you're near Logan Airport and you get too high, the FAA is going to have a problem with you. Right. Um, exactly. There yeah. are, there are, you know, you have to be aware of the notions of an expectation of privacy. If somebody's got an eight foot tall fence around their backyard in an urban setting, obviously claiming their right to privacy to be in the backyard you can't just fly a drone up there and shoot down right into their backyard. That I don't think that's okay. Um, yeah, and we we did have a case where a drone was used. We it was flown over a, uh, a public wooded area, and and we viewed a, a private uh, driveway just to prove that a certain vehicle was there at a time. <clears throat> basically, uh, impeached some trial testimony. It was very very effective. Yeah. It was very. It was done very quickly. We just flew it up, got the photo, flew it down, and it, it, I, I've found that drones are being used in that way, in a very clever way, in, in yeah. a good way. Um, but as you said, you got to be really careful. If you were to fly over that person's property and lower it down, it's it's again, it's like the same issue as shooting over a fence. I don't think they're going to look favorably. So we weren't. We were simply looking at the driveway from a wooded area, and the judge accepted that for what it was. Nice. All right. So look, we've, we've covered, I think all the basics of surveillance. There's, there's a, a world of conversations to be had about different aspects of surveillance and, and tips and tricks. 
but I think we kind of covered the basics. One of the things we started doing here at Pursuit Magazine is um, we've been taking questions from the audience, people out there that are curious about the work. Um, we've got some really good questions. We've got some kind of silly questions, but we got one last week that Kim Green just thought was funny and she wanted to find out what you and I had to say about it. And it was, if someone hired me to follow you and then someone hired you to follow me at the same time, what would that look like? Well, for, I think if you started too early, Hal, you would see no activity whatsoever on a surveillance of me. Yeah, so I get up at 430 in the morning, go do surveillance on your house. There's no activity whatsoever. Nothing, nothing at all. The and then okay. I would probably catch you heading back later in the day. And I think uh, maybe we'd meet on some doorstep of the, of the same witness on a, on a case, dressed in our jeans and blazers. And then we'd realize what was going on. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was thinking about this question, you know, images. You remember the old cartoon Spy versus Spy, and it's the the, the from uh, Mad Magazine. Yeah, yeah, the little guy all in black, the little guy all in white, yeah. and they're like you know, <laughs> passing bombs off to each other's stuff and stuff like that. That's Great what stuff. I had in my yeah. mind. Um, but yeah, look, we we do want to hear from our listeners. Um, we've we've got you know we've got a lot of ways for you to contact us. I'm going to switch real quick. John over to the um, over to the window that just shows me for a second so I can pop up a couple of URLs and I'll come back to you in a second. So pursuitmag.com pursuitmag.com Pursuit Magazine is there for private investigators written by, about, and for private investigators. Lots of useful information there about surveillance, um, surveillance tools, surveillance tricks, um, just a wealth of information there for, for the boots on the ground, um, private investigator out there doing the work. I know for a fact that a lot of journalists check out Pursuit Magazine for tips on how to interview people and do stuff like that. Go over to PursuitMag.com and check it out. You can send us a question for Ask a PI through Pursuit Mag contact. Also, you're watching this on YouTube. If you're not listening to it on the podcast, you're watching it on YouTube. Underneath this video, there's a subscribe button. Click it. Click it now. Doesn't cost you anything. Helps us out a great deal. So those are two ways you can get to us. In the comment section below the video, send us your questions. Ask a PI. We'll, if, I may not know the answer. John may not know the answer. Neither one of us may know the answer. But we're, I don't have to be the guy for everything. What I have to be is a guy that knows a guy. And You know how to ask a guy. I know how to ask a guy. There you go. Um, so again, we've said this before. What is it called when two men are mansplaining? It's called a podcast. You're listening to The Sound of Pursuit. I'm Hal Humphreys. I'm John Nardizi. And that is your Sound of Pursuit for this week. We will see you next week.